Luke chapter 2. We're on a, on a bit of a journey through Luke. Um, there was an incident uh, a month or two ago that we haven't been allowed to forget because we left Samuel at church one day. Forgot to bring him home. <laughs> been reminded of it many times by, by various people. Um, it, was, it was that classic, yeah, she has him, he has him type thing going on. And we, we, both, we both arrived home from church that Sunday morning. And uh, it was like, do you have him? No. Do you have him? No, we don't have him. And I'm, I'm really quick with, uh, with the mobile phone. And I managed to get a picture of Linda's face at that moment when she realized... <laughs> When, when she realized that we didn't have him. So there it is. <laughs> Kevin! <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's very easy to, um, to, to displace a child, misplace a child. Um, this is the story of Jesus, the, the time that Mary and Joseph lost him. Um, I didn't really lose him. He stayed behind. Uh, we, can't, we don't want to go too hard on, on them for their, their lack of of uh, concern or whatever but this is this is the only story we have of Jesus between infancy and adulthood really between the age of about two and about 30 this is all we've got and uh, just uh, just a few very brief simple thoughts as I was going through it this week Uh, nothing heavy or profound for you today we're just going through the journey of Luke and taking what comes along let me read Chapter 2, verse 31, or 41, up to the end of the chapter. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Now Mary didn't have to go, but she did. Joseph had to go. Mary went along. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You know, when she says your father and I, you know it seriously. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this little account has been kept by Luke. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to us through it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jerusalem was a place full of dark alleys, soldiers, traitors, strange people walking the streets, Not a good place to leave the child, especially this particular child. Um, But we need to bear in mind that that it does say in verse 42, 43, he stayed behind. 
It wasn't complete negligence on the part of Mary and Joseph. Jesus chose himself to stay behind in Jerusalem because there's something that he wanted to do. And it says in in verse 43, they were unaware of it. Unaware. Um, He probably at this stage had about six siblings. We know from reading the other Gospels and putting the pieces together, he definitely had at least three brothers and he definitely had at least two or probably three sisters. So there's a good chance there's a right sort of size of a flock you know, going around with Mary and Joseph at this point. And the way that they traveled was in a large group. So it wasn't just the one family. It wasn't as if they were unable to do a head count of six or seven kids and it was just them. They traveled in a large company with friends and relatives and other people all traveling as a group for safety. The women would have been at the front, uh, usually with the children, and the men would have been at the back of this, of this group. So Mary and Joseph probably weren't together, and there was just that simple assumption of um, Mary probably was saying to her friends and her, and her, her family saying, ah, oh, well, he's 12 years old now, he's at the back with the men trying to be a man. Whereas Joseph at the back talking to his mates was probably saying, ah, he's up at the front with his ma." You know, but the truth was he wasn't there with either of them. He, was, he had stayed behind in Jerusalem and they were unaware of it. They did not realize that as they moved on in their journey, Jesus was not actually with them. Now, presumption is a big word. Um, to assume something means to suppose that it's going to happen or that it is happening. To assume. To presume means based on what you've already seen in the past, you think that something is happening or will happen. And there's a bit of presumption here that as, as they go forward on their journey, well, Jesus has always been with us. He's going to be with us. We just take it for granted. Jesus is going to be with us on the journey. And they travel on for a whole day. They cover quite a bit of ground in one day's travel. They're probably 20 miles from Jerusalem before they realize that they don't actually have him. They've gone quite a distance. And the obvious point to sort of draw from this is it's very easy to just go along on your own road and be unaware of the fact that Jesus is not actually with you to presume that because he's been with you in the past that any course of action you follow he will just tag along for the ride that is not the case and we learn that even Mary and Joseph probably the last human beings on earth that you would have thought at this time would have gone off and forgot about Jesus managed to do it They were unaware that he wasn't with them. It's so easy for us to go on a course in life presuming that Jesus is with us in it when he's not. And it can take, we can go a long, long way before we realize that he's not actually on board. And they were unaware. God's people have been presumptuous lots of times in the Old Testament. In Joshua 7, they were presumptuous about a battle that they were going to win against the people of Ai. And whenever they go to fight them, God is not with them and they are defeated. And it's because there's sin in the camp. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel goes to two defeats with the Philistines, assuming that when they bring the ark with them, God will be with them and they will win a victory. But God's not with them, again, because there's sin among them, among their priests and leaders. It's very easy to just presume, I'm going to do this because I know God will join me in it and God has no intention of joining us in it. You contrast that with David in 2 Samuel 5. David inquires of God about attacking the Philistines and God says, yes, go and attack them, you will have success. And he goes and he attacks them. And then immediately afterwards, literally the next verse, the scenario repeats itself. And David is not presumptuous. He does not just say to his men, well, we whipped the Philistines last time, we're going to go and whip them again this time. No, he inquires of the Lord again. Even though he's doing the same thing that he has done before, that has given him success in the past, he still takes time to sit down and to seek God and say, is this the right course of action? And God says, yes, go ahead when you hear the sound of the the mulberry leaves rustling in the wind. Don't presume, folks, that God will just be with us in everything we do. We've got to keep that close, intimate connection with him in all the decisions that we make. And then the search begins. And the first place they look in verse 44 is among their relatives and friends. You know, there's, I think it's very possible that some of us can look to our friends, our relatives, our spouse, our family, other places to try and find the things in life that only Jesus can give. The joy, the purpose, the satisfaction, the knowledge of God that only comes through Jesus, we can sometimes start to look for that among other people. And Joseph and Mary are running around their friends and family trying to find Jesus. And as they search, they head back to Jerusalem and there's an interesting time note that is given by Luke three days. Three days later, since they lost him, three days passed and they find him in the temple. And we've got two words then that that Luke really likes to use. He uses the word amazed, first of all. And he, he uses this word in his gospel and he uses it in Acts. And he talks about how the people were amazed. Jesus is 12 years old. He's in the temple. He's with the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, and he's listening to them. And he's asking them questions and he's in discussion with them. He's not being an arrogant little sort of brat, you know, who know it all, just telling them you're all wrong. This is how it is. He's engaging with them. He's listening to them and he's asking them questions. He's 12 years old. And he's seeking to know more about God by discussing with these men in the temple. And they're amazed at his knowledge and his understanding. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I don't know about you, but my default there is to think, ah, it was Jesus. (laughs) He had an advantage. I sometimes, uh, I'm trying to get rid of this idea that Jesus, do you remember Action Man? Remember the wee thing on the back of his neck that moved his eyes? This was, anybody anybody old enough to remember Action Man? And there's a wee thing that we switched, do you remember? On the back, this was advanced technology for toys back then and if you moved it side to side his eyes would flit left and right in a really evil sort of manner i think a lot of us think that jesus had a wee switch somewhere on the back of his neck and he flicked the switch and did the god thing he sort of used it as a as a wild card as an advantage that he took upon himself 
I don't believe that Jesus at 12 years old flicked a switch and downloaded the Hebrew scriptures from the cloud and then just used them in an argument with these guys. I believe that he was raised in the scriptures. His parents loved the scriptures. He loved the scriptures and he learned them. And I don't believe he had an advantage over other people in that respect. He, if the incarnation is to be believed and if Jesus fully God was also fully man and had to grow, we read about him maturing, we read about him growing in wisdom, we read about him learning in Hebrews. It was not just that he, he flicked the God switch and, and sort of went into superhero mode in the temple with all his knowledge. He had gained that from years of study at a young age in a godly household where God's word was revered and read. And, and our children, we sh we, we've got to expect more from our children. We've got to, to believe that at a young age they can know the scriptures and they can know God and they can have hearts after him. That it's not just something for adults. Do we have, do we have the scriptures, those of us that have kids, do we have the word of God central in our homes? Do we read it to our children? Do we read it with our children? Do we encourage them to read it? Do we walk and talk with them about the scriptures? Or is it something that we, we look at them and think, well, they're only young someday. You can be amazed sometimes at what people will come out with, what kids will come out with. You watch Harry walking about a week or two ago breaking bread after the service. He found a bap and went around, you know, distributing the bread. It's amazing what kids will pick up when they're just in the environment with God's people. So they're amazed at what Jesus knows, but I believe he knows it because he learned it and he was taught it, not because he just had some sort of special advantage. And another word that, you, that Luke uses here in, in verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Amazed and astonished. Now, this word astonished, I had a look at it to see what it actually meant. And I'm going to do the Latin thing, but it's coming in a minute. If you look up astonished, one of the meanings of the word astonished is to displace something. Almost as if something that previously was held as being really good has now been blown out of the water by something else. Astonished. Um, for example, you take the Olympics and somebody breaks a world record. You, you go back to Linford Christie running the 100 meters in 9.96 seconds back in the early 90s and think, boy, that was awesome. But then Usain Bolt runs it in 9.58 seconds. About 10 years ago, blows it out of the water, astonishes people, displaces that which was there from before. So this word astonishment is used whenever something awesome comes along and just pushes away what was there before. And we read about, about Jesus' parents being astonished. And what it literally means is out of the thunder. Out of the thunder. Ah, or A-S at the start is out of, and then the, the ton in the middle comes from the word for thunder. Astonished. When something thunders out. Now, when you hear thunder overhead, if a storm is passing over and it's not off in the distance, it's passing overhead and the thunder is really loud, at the moment that that thunder cracks, it dominates your attention. Nothing else, no matter what you're doing, watching TV, eating dinner, drinking coffee, reading a book, out with a dog, out in the garden, doing your job, no matter what it is, the moment that that thunder cracks, it displaces everything else that's in your mind and it dominates your attention for that short period of time that it goes. I remember Linda and I being at a, at a concert in Dublin a long time ago. Um, oh, 
I don't know, early, early 2000s, maybe, I don't know, maybe 2005, 2006. It was, uh, it was Bon Jovi season, <laughs> forgive me, uh, but I still do listen. Um, and it was at the RDS in Dublin. I know, I know. It. Just for anyone listening on the audio, nobody has walked out. Um, and it was, there was a huge electrical storm that night. I mean, it was unbelievable. The entire night was just thunder and lightning for hours and, and heavy rain. And the, the gig went on. But when you think about this word, out of the thunder, astonishment, displacing other things, you had the spectacle of the show and the stage and the lights. You had the volume of the music. You had the sort of near hysteria of the crowd. Uh, you've got a man on the stage who really does like to draw attention to himself. But whenever the lightning flashed and the thunder cracked, everybody looked at the sky, including the people on the stage. You could just see it in their eyes. Everybody was just now and again glancing up. The thunder just drew the attention and displaced everything that was going on, even though what was going on was a big spectacle. And whenever Mary and Joseph see Jesus, they are astonished at what he's doing. He is displacing everything else. Now, church, are you astonished at Jesus? Because if you've lost the sense of astonishment, I think you're in a really dangerous place. Are you astonished by Jesus? Or have you got familiar with him? Have you domesticated him? Have you trained him a little bit to sort of walk at your heel and do what you say? Or is the astonishment gone? I want just, just let that be a little diagnostic in your heart right now. Is the astonishment about who Jesus is fading? Now, that's a warning light on the dashboard if it is. That's a warning light. I was faffing about with reading plans a couple of years ago for, for reading through the Bible uh, over, over the course of a year. And I looked at lots and lots of different ones and I ended up then making up my own. And the reason I made one up on my own, because every other one I looked at, there would have been at least six to eight months during the year that I was not reading anything in the Bible from the Gospels, anything about Jesus. And yes, the whole book's about Jesus and points to him, but the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the miracles and mighty deeds of Jesus, I was going to be going through over half my year, I would not be exposed to him. So I made up my own and, and the way I designed it was just that every day I read something from the Old Testament, I read something from the Gospels or Acts, and then something from the Epistles. And it means I go through the Gospels and Acts four times a year and it means every single day of my life I am reading about Jesus, his words, his actions, or about the early church, which is still his actions through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostles. I want to keep the astonishment. Do you understand? I want to keep the wonder of who he is. I've written, I've told you before, I have an old Bible at home and I've written down the side of Revelation 1, never lose sight of his majesty. The astonishment. And I've told you before as well that, that one of the huge moments in my early Christian life was, was studying John's gospel and becoming astonished by Jesus. Everything changed. Everything changed. And that was probably, I don't know, maybe five, six years after I was actually born again. 
I moved into this place of astonishment. This man, this God-man is incredible. (laughs) Have you lost the astonishment or does he still thunder into your life? Does he still thunder? Does he still displace other things? He is not a tame lion. Let your heart, let the Holy Spirit just check you if you need checked. Have you lost the astonishment? And then Mary rebukes Jesus. Uh, And she says, uh, why have you treated us like this? Classic parenting blunder. Don't guilt trip your children. Why did you put us through this, you know? So easy to do, but not really good. Why have you treated us like this? She's disappointed with Jesus because Jesus was not on the journey she was on. Now listen to me. Some of us, we we go on journeys and we, we head off in a direction in life. And after we've gone a certain distance down that road, thankfully we come to a realization, I've lost Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> and don't go theological on me, you know what I mean? You, we go, we go a, a journey and we follow a certain pathway and then something stops us in our tracks and we're like, he's not here. Yes, he's here. I know he's here, but he's not. I, I've lost his presence. I've lost his nearness. I've lost the astonishment. I've gone off on this journey. It seemed like a good journey. Mary and Joseph was like, we're only going home. <laughs> you know, We've been to Jerusalem, to the temple. We're just going home. We're not, we're not heading off to a life of wickedness and sin. We're just going home. We're just doing my job. I'm just going about my business. I'm just raising my family. I'm just, all of these things. It's not that they were doing anything bad, but the point was they were heading off on a journey of life that left Jesus behind. And whenever Mary realized Jesus And again, I'm lifting something from this and just applying it onto us as we walk with him. Whenever she realized, here on my journey, Jesus is not here, she got angry with Jesus. You ever done that? You know, ever ever gone off in a direction that you want to go on and then suddenly you realize Jesus is not actually in this. He's not with me in this. I've, I've, I've stepped off on a bit of a rabbit trail here And your first instinct is, unfortunately, to get angry with God. God, you're so disappointing. I wanted to do this and you wouldn't come with me. And Mary gets, she's disappointed in Jesus. But she had chose to walk away effectively. Her and Joseph had gone off without him. It's always our selfishness that separates us from God. I'm convinced that when we look at our our lives and the things that we struggle with, there are two sources of it. One source is the enemy, Satan demonic spiritual attack the other source of our problems if it's not demonic spiritual attack i believe the other source of our problems is selfishness we simply have not died (laughs) jesus says deny yourself take up your cross follow me and an awful lot of christians haven't done that i sometimes when i get when i start to feel a wee bit of self-pity and a wee bit of uh, oh poor me you know whatever i i suddenly realize hang on dead people have no complaints (laughs) if i was really dead to self and alive in Christ, if I was dead to self, I wouldn't get annoyed about that. When, things get an, when, I, when I start to get annoyed about things, that's a good way to just to check, hang on, I'm a dead man. Mm. Alive in Christ, but dead to self. That shouldn't be annoying me because I'm dead. <laughs> Why did you do this? Disappointment with God. Mary rebukes Jesus. Then Jesus rebukes 
his mama. And he says to her, why did you have to search for me? In other words, why did you not know where I would be? You didn't need to search through the crowds. You didn't need to come back and search through the streets of Jerusalem. Why did you not know where I would be? I wasn't lost and you should know where I was. Why were you looking for me among the crowd? The end of Mark's gospel, the, the angels say to the, to the ones who come to the tomb, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you trying to find life where there is death? You should know by now where to look for Jesus. Do, do we know where to look for Jesus? We find him in the word. We find him in Christian community. We find him in devotion and prayer. And I wonder, does some of us just need to go on a bit of a search? Have we gone a day's journey away from his presence? Have we suddenly realized that do we need to make a journey back again and find him in those places? When you read in the Song of Solomon, you read about... <clears throat> The, the woman in the Song of Solomon cannot find her lover. And there's a desperation as she runs around the streets. Do you, have you seen him? Do you know where he is? And my heart, my heart aches, you know, where is he? And in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. And I think there's a wee bit of Song of Solomon in the background. But she comes to the tomb in the garden. And the tomb's empty. And she finds the gardener who is actually Jesus. Where have you put him? Where is he? That desperation to be in his presence which we lose so easily when we just wander off down life's journey after good things, but without him. Have we lost him? Do we need to search? And she says to him, your father and I have been looking for you. And he just, just volleys that back at her and says, hang on, I need to be in my father's house. I need to be about my father's work. Different father. And I think one of the reasons that Luke includes this is because this is just a pivotal statement about who Jesus is and what his mission is. And his own self-awareness, his own growing understanding of, of who he is. We have a child who likes to push the boundaries of bedtime. It might not be the child you think would push the boundaries of bedtime. But there's a child who struggles to turn the light out at night whenever the light's meant to be turned out. And there's a little keyhole on the child's door and you can just see through it, light is still on. And there was one night um, a couple of months ago, maybe a wee bit longer, that this was about 15 or 20 minutes after lights out time. This child likes books and the light was still on and I thought, child is still reading. I shall go in and tell, tell said child to stop reading. And I went in, you remember this? Yeah, you monkey. I, I went in and I said, listen, you know, your light was meant to be out 15, 20 minutes ago. You've school tomorrow. What are you doing? And doesn't she reach onto the bed and hold up the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> and the word is busted. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> Nobody in parenting school teaches you what to do in that moment. And you're just like, what do I do now? Do I rebuke her for reading her Bible after lights out time? And just, you know, wrecked, totally wrecked. And Jesus does this with his, with his mom when she comes to him. What's going on? Why did you put us through this? And he says, I'm about God's work. <laughs> you know, I'm doing good things here. I'm reading my Bible. I'm talking to these guys about the word of God. He just turns it around and nails her with it. And these are, these are his first recorded words in Luke. Always notice that. I think in all four Gospels, you should just take note. What are the, if you've got one of those red letter Bibles, in which, just to be honest with you, the red letters aren't always correct. Some of the red letters should be black. 
in, in some gospels, but when you hit the red letters first, what are the first words? Because I'm sure these gospel writers, as they wrote their books, they thought very carefully, what's the first thing that's going to come out of Jesus' mouth in my gospel? And these are the first things that Jesus says in Luke's gospel. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? In fact, house is not in the text. It actually literally says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's? And then there's nothing there. There's actually no word there. And some versions put in my father's business or my father's work. Some versions put in my father's house. I think it's a wee bit of both, to be honest. His father's house, don't just think that's the temple, that's the gray building or whatever. That's the, pre- the presence of God. I had to be in the presence of God. You, sh- you, you could find me in his presence, which I believe in the New Testament is among the people of God. You'll find me in a worshiping community. And you'll find me doing my father's work. And there's this moment of, and this is the heart, I think, of the story and why Luke included it. It's called a pronouncement story where, where the statement that Jesus makes is the point of the whole story. And the point is, I must be about my father's business, not yours. And this, again, is a huge challenge in discipleship. Because what we want to do when we follow Jesus is we want to invite him into our lives. And that's a phrase you'll hear a lot about church. I use it sometimes myself. It's all right. But we have this notion of, I'm inviting Jesus into my life. No, <laughs> you're not doing the inviting. Jesus is doing the inviting. He's the one issuing the invitation. We have this, this attitude where we're like, I'm going to invite Jesus into my life. He's going to make my life better. He's going to bless my life. And he's going to be with me in the journeys that I go on. And everything will be good. That's a, that's a Western gospel probably of the last century or so. No, no, we're not inviting. We're not inviting. Jesus is the one doing the inviting. And the invitation is, I invite you to come to my cross and die. And then I will give you life like you've never known before. Talking to the guys last Sunday night in in John 3 and just explaining to them about eternal life. Eternal life does not mean when, when I physically die, I'm going to then receive everlasting life and live forever. No, eternal life is the life of God. It's already here. It's already here. This physical body will die, but there is a life of God in me that has been given me by Jesus and it cannot be taken away and it will pass through death without flinching. That life, that eternal Zoe life of God. Jesus says, I am inviting you discipleship. I'm inviting you to be about the Father's house. I'm inviting you to be about the Father's business. I'm inviting you to be crucified with me and I will give you life. Not you're inviting me to come along and enhance your life. Be careful you don't fall for a false gospel. Coming to a close. If you know Luke, then these these points will, will cause your mind to go somewhere else. And it's a lovely thing that Luke does with his gospel to put like a frame around it. You've got two people who have been without Jesus for three days and whenever they find him, he starts talking about necessary things. Here in Luke chapter two, he says, literally says, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's house? It was necessary for me to be about my father's house. As you think about Luke, I'm taking you to the light switch here and seeing if you can put it on yourself. As you think about Luke, can you think of two people 
who were without Jesus for three days, and whenever they found him, he spoke to them about necessary things. The necessary things that he spoke about was, he said, did, did you not know? He opened up the scriptures to them. He says, he, he, he said that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. Who were the two people? Or where were the two people? They were on the road to Emmaus. And at the very end of his gospel, at the very start of his gospel, Luke has two people who go three days without Jesus and when they find him, he talks about necessary things. And both of the incidents as well involve a return to Jerusalem, a return to where he is, back to the presence. In both cases, the, the two people had journeyed away from Jerusalem, away from the Father's house, away from the temple. Mary and Joseph heading home after the feast, the two on the road to Emmaus heading home after coming to Jerusalem and seeing the crucifixion. And in both cases, they were turned around and back they came to Jerusalem. They went on their own journey no more. But they came back and they journeyed back to the presence, back to where he was. And I think it's, it's a way in Luke's gospel that he tells us that Jesus will interrupt our journeys. <laughs> when we're happily going our own way, Jesus will interrupt our journeys and he will astonish us by doing things that we don't expect and by teaching things that we don't expect. Every time you think you understand him, he just takes another step forward. Anytime you, every time you think you're, you're sort of ahead of the game and away you move forward, you realize, oh, I've left him behind. And you have to keep on centering yourself. If you work with any sort of equipment that needs calibrated from time to time, there's that tendency to drift and drift and drift. You have to keep recalibrating. You've got to keep bringing it back to the center. And we do that. We do that centering as a community when we are together. We do it individually when we're in God's word and in prayer. But there's got to be that constant centering. Church, do not assume that the journey you're on necessarily means that Jesus is accompanying you in it. I'd really challenge you to reflect on that. Have you walked away from him? Not into heinous sin, but have you drifted away from him and all of a sudden you just take a look around like Mary and Joseph did in that crowd and have had these moments as well in big shops with kids where you just suddenly look around and think, where is he? <laughs> where is he? You know, he's not tall enough to be visible over the clothes rails and you're just like, I'm in a department store in a big city. Where is he? <laughs> you start frantically going around the place. As you evaluate your own life and I invite the Holy Spirit to just put his, his, his finger on your heart, have you lost the presence do you need to turn around and go on a search and find him again? And when you find him, he'll not just sort of give you a wee pat on the head and say, there, there, it'll be okay. No, he'll say, my business and my work is the Father's work. I invite you to join me in it. I'm interested in the details of your life, but I'm not here to polish your life. I'm not here just to help you to enjoy the things that you want better. I'm here about the Father's work. Join me in it. Father, thank you for this little story. Thank you for just the simple instruction that we get in it, Lord. And I ask, Lord, even in these moments of quiet and stillness in this place before, after the chaos of one week and before the chaos of another week, of just noise and activity, that in the stillness, Lord, that we would Invite the Holy Spirit just to come and show us if there are warning lights on the dashboards of our hearts. 
have we drifted as we've pursued our own things? Forgive us, Lord. Give us the courage to acknowledge if we've drifted and to turn around and to seek you, to go to your presence, to go to worshiping community, to go to people that love you, to go to your word, to go to our knees and to to get back to the center of the Father's house and the Father's work. Thank you, Lord. And I ask Holy Spirit as well that you would renew the astonishment. Oh God, forgive us for those times that we, we come to your table, we come to your presence and we've lost the wonder. We've lost the amazement and the astonishment. Astonish us all over again, Jesus, with who you are. Amen.